1: Welcome in. This is the Thursday Deep Dive episode with Ian Gray. Um, I'm here with Ryan. As always, you guys probably know that. But Ian, how are we doing today? Um, how is it? Are you back in Flagstaff? Are you down in Phoenix? Uh,
2: yeah, back Yeah, back in Flagstaff now. Um, was actually up in the market a little bit today. It was a down day, but um, just a weird mix of things was up for me. So
1: I saw you were on uh, with the guys at Cruising Altitude. That's... That's exciting. You talked Mohawk. That reminded me of that.
2: You know? Yep. Yep. Talked Mohawk a little bit, and um, they're doing some cool stuff over at Cruising Altitude. I think really talking about trying to reach Gen Z investors and get them kind of on the path that we always talk about about long term investing, focused on fundamentals, not just getting into day trading or yeah. um, you know anything like that. So it's it's cool to be, uh, you know, to to be able to talk about Gen Z investing and just uh, that long term mindset.
1: Yeah, it's good when you find people with long term mindsets. But we got to get to the topic of the show uh and actually we gotta mention our sponsor first seven investing ryan you want to talk about them because it's a big week when the show comes out i believe their recommendations are going to go through unless they play an april fool's show because it will be april first i think
0: yeah i don't think they'll play an april fool's joke maybe they just release like seven terrible picks they're going to release seven uh all
1: seven are going to recommend
0: dogecoin no if you want your uh, yeah if you want a short list there you go. The April Fool's prank, whatever they have. Uh, no, use code CCM. You get $10 off your first month. Uh, yeah. the rele- They will be released, right? So this is coming out Thursday. So. Yes. Same day. Uh, they just
1: wow. hired Anurban Mahanti. He is from Australia and he is a PhD in computer science with a giant investing background. So I mean, one, they're adding another person that's an expert in international stuff and is a tech expert too. It's kind of like,
0: Yeah. He sounded very smart.
1: Yeah. Very smart. And I think can at least help, you know, you know, you're not just following them blindly. You can help learn about these different industries, help you with Mm -hmm. research. But today we're talking Farfetch to get off of that. And it is a fashion company, uh, but it's a little more complex. So Ryan, why don't you introduce it?
0: Yeah, I would say it's, yeah, I guess it's a fashion company, but they're online. Really, they're an online luxury fashion platform. So there's, several different parts to the business, but the portion that makes up the most of revenue is their far-fetched marketplace. Uh, And the way I think about this is, it's kind of like an Etsy for luxury goods. They connect luxury brands, boutiques, department stores to consumers all over. I think it's 190 countries. Yeah, very global, very global, yeah. Um, but there, yeah, there's other components as well. As I mentioned, they categorize these operations into three different reporting segments. So they got the digital platform, brand platform, and in-store. The digital platform is any sales that are done online. So some of those are first-party sales where obviously they absorb all the volume on those. So the GMB, that's all belongs to them. But then the, some of them are third-party sales where they basically just act as an intermediary and they take a 29% take rate, which is really high. Yeah, very. Um, so I guess maybe the margins must be really high on these luxury goods. And it's also a testament to how valuable the platform is to the sellers um, if they're willing to pay a 30% take rate. Um, but it also includes Farfetch platform solutions, which is a le- which is a white label enterprise offering for luxury brands. So the way I understand it is it's kind of like a Shopify for luxury brands. It gives them a full e-commerce solution. Uh, and then they have brand platform, but this is a very small compo- component of revenue. It's basically the wholesale operations of uh, the brand's new guard zones, but it's any brand that Farfetch owns where it's doing wholesale operations, uh, where they sell it to a luxury store and that luxury store marks it up or whatever. That's where they That's where they categorize it. And then they have in-person or in-store sales. Um, this is just physical store location so they've made several acquisitions. they have Browns, which is a fashion retailer stadium goods who if you've never shopped there, they offer premium sneakers. Uh, the, apparently the average order amount on that at that sneaker store is north of300. dollars
1: that's where well, I, I assume a lot of value investors
0: have. yeah, of course and uh, yeah, very uh, frugal people probably go yes, there. Exactly. Um, but then they have the new guards portfolio which owns a bunch of different brands, one of which is off-white um, which, I don't know if you ever heard of Slack I've like never that. heard of any check of these Check out those things. Off-Whites. Yeah,
1: you can tell I'm not, we're, we're not all fashionable here. Uh, I don't think I've heard of any of these things. Have you?
0: I've, I've heard of Off-Whites. I've heard okay. people be there like, you know. yo, check out those Off-Whites. Wow. So, Ian, have you heard of these things?
2: Yeah, I've heard of Off-Whites, but none of the other ones. Wow.
1: So, I'm, all I'm all right. Well, I guess I'm the one that is totally out of the loop.
0: Browns, Brown's the English fashion retailer, looks like. Where all of Peaky Blinders shops for really? <laughs> Maybe I
1: have to. Uh, maybe I have to take a look.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the uh, history. The idea was born in two thousand seven, but the farfetch website went live in two thousand eight. The founder and still CEO is a Portuguese entrepreneur named Jose Neves. Um, and when the company first launched, there were only five people on the team. I think they expanded pretty quick. They got an investment from someone who did. He wrote like a long form medium post on the seed investment that they made. So I kind of okay. read that. Kind of interesting. But the company's headquartered in London has branches all over the globe. Um, they acquired Browns in 2015. JD.com took a stake in 2017 by investing almost $400 dollars. Farfetch went public in 2018, and in 2019, they acquired both Stadium Goods and New Guards, but apparently it's set to terminate its partnership with JD.com now that they've partnered with Alibaba. Yeah, they're gonna dig the they into.
1: Yeah, that that happened really recently, right? So it's a big switch right yeah. now, kind of a big transition for them. Yeah. I'll hit industry and competition. Ian, do you have anything before? All right. I'll hit industry and competition. Uh, This is from the 20th, which if you don't know, that's basically the 10K. uh, If you're an international company and you're based in the US, they say we face competition from technology enablement companies, marketplaces, platforms, and luxury sellers. So tech enablement, they define as something like a Square, Shopify, or Wix, which makes a lot of sense if you know those companies. And then luxury sellers are department stores, online stores, things like that. Very standard platforms and other marketplaces. I assume they're talking about, and they didn't give any specific examples, but I assume they're talking about things like Real Real, and uh, gosh, I get the name wrong every time. It's Poshmark. Is that correct? Do we know? Ian, do you know if it's Poshmark or Poshmark? Whatever that one is, uh, but something like that. And uh, they estimate that. There is $300 billion uh, for the global luxury market, and I think that is currently. The company thinks that $100 billion of that will be in China by 2025. Now, the overall market could be larger than, but you kind of see why, and we'll talk about this later, they're making this big Chinese push. Um, around 80% of luxury goods are still sold in person right now, projected to be about 70% by 2025, but just know that those numbers are always estimates, and I don't know. Well, I guess we'll talk about this later, too, about how much of this is really going to move online. But we'll kick it over to Ian, if you want to talk about management more in detail.
2: Yep. Diving into management, the founder and CEO, as Ryan mentioned, is Jose Neves. Um, He's been involved with fashion for basically his entire career. He's a pretty young guy, I think, uh, like 46 years old. And uh, in the 90s, he was a coder and decided to also launch a shoe label uh, called Swear. And so he was he was kind of intrigued by the the idea of selling things around the world and always even he says even back then looked at it and said like we need a platform where we can sell things around the world um which obviously <laughs> became became reality um one quote he had in an interview with the australian financial review is it's about connecting the dots for cons uh, for the customer consumers don't differentiate between online and offline multi-brand or standalone store They don't care if they buy a Prada bag in in Prada or online or in a department store. They just want the bag, close quote. And I think that's, you see, at least when I'm looking at Farfetch, there's so many different things that they're kind of involved in and different ways that they're trying to capture this market. And I think this kind of clarifies a little bit why they're doing that, that that they see it as all about connecting the dots for the customer and just whatever way they want to get the bag. Let's figure out the best way to get them the best, most cost, cost effective way to get them the bag. Um, I do generally appreciate the way that he looks at the industry as well. He's really not worried about cannibalization or um, competition. Even he, they, they have about 1% of the industry and it, they just see it as just such an opportunity and that they don't really have to worry about competition or what other people are doing or other online, uh, platforms are doing because everybody can win in their estimation. So, uh, I do, I think that that's probably the right way for this business to be looking at it right now. Um, they have the, so kind of diving more into own, the ownership structure, they have sort of a confusing ownership structure. Um, JD, which Ryan was mentioning, they used to partner with, uh, still owns a stake about two and a half percent of the company. It's not a huge stake, but fairly sizable. Um, but like, like we've talked about is no longer gonna be a partner. So they may be selling out of that. Um, and then Alibaba on, uh, Richemont. Is that how you say it? Maybe
1: I think you might have gotten it wrong, but if you had it right, but if you got it totally wrong,
2: yeah, who knows you can, you can uh, let us know on, on Twitter, or, you know, email, send your emails to Ryan, but um, it's uh, they basically made, it's a French fashion company. And so they were partnering with Alibaba on this French fashion company. And so they've become um, some fairly substantial shareholders as well. Um, Nevis owns about 12% of the shares, which are basically all class B shares um, which have a lot of voting power. And so he's got over 70% of the voting rights. So that's one thing to look at in this company is that you really have to trust Nevis because he, um, he has voting control. He can do what he wants with this company.
1: Yeah. That's the key when, like, when you see this dual class thing, a lot of people are like, Whoa, that's terrible. It's terrible. It, you just have to kind of switch your mindset where, all right, the CEO or founder, or whoever is now like, I got to know this guy is on the ball or I trust him or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a hedge for the founders, you know, yeah. they, they can get that funding, I guess, without having the risk of being ousted.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, true, true. And that, or God.
2: yeah, I was just gonna say, when I'm looking at ownership structure, one of the main things, the way I started thinking about it is really like, if I was going to do a private deal with these people, are these people I want to be in business with for one reason or another, right? Are they do they have um and sometimes it's not that they're bad people but do we have the same incentives and so if someone's got a big stake in the company i really want to know um like are we are we seeking the same things which is why it's so important to hear what management's vision is when they have a big uh, voting stake like this
1: right and then the alibaba investment was that a convertible
2: note i saw uh, i know it's kind of confusing but i thought they may have owned some convertible note i'm not sure i think I think it's both equity and a convertible note, if I'm um, looking at this right. They, they Part of it was a joint venture um, for a new brand in uh, China, this this platform they're building in China. And so um, they all kind of have an ownership stake in that joint vi- venture. Um, but I believe you're right that there was a convertible note involved as well. Okay. I'll hit valuation then. Market cap's about
1: $19.5 billion ticker is FTCH. Now, uh, granted, the stock likes to go up or down like five percent a day. Uh, so make sure to convert those numbers; those could change really rapidly. Uh, the price to, and now this isn't a traditional metric, but price to GMV. Don't it's laugh. A, I'm just going to use it to it's a reference. bubble metric. Yeah, price to GMV <laughs> is about six point one, so a little rich, I would say. Trailing price to sales is about eleven point seven, so you can kind of see that they're actually converting a ton of that GMV to revenue. And then price to gross profit twenty five point three. They are technically operating cash flow positive, but a ton of that is just stock-based compensation. And they've been increasing share count a ton over the last five years. So really factor that into your assessment. Like for example, uh, last year, there was 3.4 million shares gifted to executives and board of directors. So they do love stock-based compensation. Not necessarily a good or a bad thing, but just know that you're going to face share cap headwinds. Um, Yeah, they're not
0: profitable right now. And there's a lot of... There are a lot of convertibles outstanding. Yes. So uh, that even more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I will talk about it again when
1: we get into my low lights. But Ryan, do you want to hit the rings
0: Yeah. And so, as you said, GMV might seem like an obscure or pointless metric, but when you have a 30% take rate and you have first party sales, GMV can be somewhat relevant. Yeah. Uh, especially with luxury goods because you're selling them at such a huge markup. Uh, but GMV grew 49% year over year to little more than $3 billion. Uh, revenue grew 64% year-over-year year to $1.7 billion. Uh, this is for full year numbers. Uh, gross margin was 46.1%. I think that ticked up a little bit. Net loss was uh, $3 billion. I put $3 million here, but yeah, you heard that right. Net loss of $3 billion. However, there's a large discrepancy between gap numbers and cash flow, uh, and we'll explain why in a second. But they had 116 million in operating cash flow so they were not free cash flow but operating cash flow positive but they had 168 million in stock-based compensation so that pretty much all wipes out all their operating cash flow Um, but that major discrepancy between gap and cash flow was a reconciliation of some of their uh investments i guess it's a fair value assessment because you're required to do that with gap accounting uh, and it was a two and a half billion dollar write down essentially on derivatives that they have and uh these were hedges on I don't know hedges on convertibles or do you do you know so Ian might be able to chime in here do you have something Ian
2: yeah i can chime in a little bit so i think part of the thing here is they they are a foreign company located in uh london and so they're not actually under us gap they're under uh, uh fasb and so or not FASB, IASB or whatever it is. So they're under the international standards. Um, And so I think the way that they uh, calculate some of the fair value on this type of stuff is actually different than they do it under US GAAP. So Mm -hmm. that's part of the difficulty here, I think. But basically, whether it's the, I can't, I was trying to figure out if it was actually separate derivatives or if they were just basing this on the strike price for the convertible notes. But I think
1: that's what it was too, but I, it was complicated.
2: Con- They're they not super clear about it. But what they are clear about is they say um, for every dollar increase in the stock price, these um, notes, like the fair value, depending on which notes it is, the fair value write down is like, uh, for one of them, it was like $22 million for every dollar that the stock went up. and, and the, so, Yeah, and the stock's at 50-something. So right. it's Right, so give a little bit of a relative number. So basically, they're they're having to write a, write down a loss every time the stock goes up a dollar, if that's how they're measuring it. So that's nice. Um, that's
1: kind of a cheat code, though, because no, it's not really a cheat code. I, I'll get into this on my low whites, but their CFO—I don't know—fire your CFO. What is he doing? These notes have like five percent rates and- too.
0: The I other, I okay. The other thing is, I want to be alarmed by this, but they know it's tricky to understand. They should have been very direct about explaining yeah. it, both on the twenty F and in the conference call. They, I mean, they such had, a long twenty
1: F too. Four hundred pages, just ridiculous.
0: They had a net loss that was almost two hundred percent of revenue, and they they only mentioned this revaluation once on the conference call, and they were like, "Don't worry, we can just it, it can be paid for in shares. <laughs> like, just add it back. Just add it back." We're good, we're good. It's a write-off.
1: It's a write-off, you don't even know what a write-off is. Uh, sorry, we got a little derailed, but Ryan, do you have anything else on that?
0: No, I guess it, I would try to understand through management commentary. I mean, you can try to read the 20F, but it's very vague and the terms were very hard to understand. So I guess listen to management commentary on that stuff um, to try to get a grasp on how those uh,
2: re are working.
1: Yeah, all right, Ian, you want to talk balance sheet?
2: Yep, the Farfetch has about 1.5 billion in cash, about 826 million in total debt. Uh, basically, that's all convertible notes. But these convertible notes, and I know that uh, I'm sure Brad's just dying to get in here too, but they've got a ton of bad strike prices. Um, th- these were written, you know, back back in uh, like February, March um, of 2020, and then even up up to more recent. Um, And they had strike prices of like $12, $16, $32, all well below, um, what this, what the stock's trading at now. And I think there's a lot of people, a lot of far-fetched bulls who think that the stock is, uh, undervalued right now too. So just really not, not great strike prices on those. And it's expensive for the shareholders. Just the dilution is going to be, um, not a lot of fun, I don't think. And it's, as we've been talking about, it's not a cash expense, these, these, Uh, write downs that they've been doing or not write downs, but these uh, fair value measurements that they've been doing. But it is costing shareholders indirectly through all these, the the dilution. And so um, I think, you know, we can, we can debate about whether the number is too high, right? Like that it's that the number that they're reporting is too high and whether it matters or not. But the reality is that shareholders are getting diluted. Um, The last thing I'll mention on the balance sheet is about a third of assets are intangibles, which is somewhat high. Um, again, there's some, the international accounting standards are a little bit different about what's valued as an intangible, if I'm remembering correctly. And so, um, I think that they oftentimes, the international companies oftentimes have more intangibles than, uh, U S companies, but, uh, not too, even with that, not too concerning. It was, um, it, it looked reasonable to me and that, you know, you might see some possible write downs. I think they're amortizing some of it. So, um, you know, you, you, you'll probably see a little bit of a hit to net income, but not any sort of cash expense.
1: All right. Okay. Ryan, you got anything else on balance sheet? Okay. That's going to be it. We're going to take a break and then talk the fun stuff, competitive advantages, future growth, then what we like to do like. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices you'll get
2: real-time alerts.
1: Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is
2: Red color, red color, where are you?
1: (sighs) All blocked. Thanks to Advanced Security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced Security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay. Welcome in. Next up is competitive advantages. We'll kick things off with Ian, as always. What do you got?
2: For me, I'm going to take a pretty basic one here, but I think they have some, a competitive advantage of scale. Doing $3 billion in revenue, about uh, they, they calculated is about 1% of the whole... GMV. Uh, GMV. Volume, not revenue, but 1.7 in revenue volume my bad um but huge scale they uh i think that's a major advantage makes them the place to be if if sellers are wanting to use um Their platform to to sell their items. It's just it creates a lot of eyeballs there. Um, It's getting some of those network effects and flywheel. I know it's a a little little bit cringy on this show, but I think it's true. They get more brands, they get more consumers, their margins improve, um, which helps them to attract more brands and consumers, and it just kind of continues. And that's I think that's the business model: is hey, if we can get. It's, it's a classic platform business model, right? We need more people on this side, more people on this side, and it's just gonna to continue to grow together. And so the fact that they've already hit this um, large scale, gives them a competitive advantage at, uh, against anyone who's trying to get into this space.
0: Yeah, I agree there, I agree there. Ryan, Yeah. Uh, for me, it's trust, uh, protect, particularly on the consumer side. So everyone knows that luxury goods have like a lot of replicas and fakes, and it's really easy to get ripped off, especially online. So having a brand that people trust that's hard to disrupt. It's hard for someone to like come up and build a business model that's similar to Farfetch's because you could potentially, you know, one one bad one, one fake item could, you know, be the demise of a platform if the, you know, if that gets heard because the, you just can't trust it. And so being the reputable place to exchange luxury goods, uh, it feels kind of hard to replace.
1: Right. Yeah. Like, uh, Trust and brand are super important with luxury. I think we can all agree on that. And if Farfetch can be that, it's really hard. But it's weird that they're not the actual brand. I don't know. They are sometimes.
0: Oh. Well, they own some of the brands sometimes. yeah. Okay. And the other thing I would say is this isn't necessarily a competitive advantage against luxury goods, but um, against traditional retail, luxury is more resilient in downtimes. That's true. That's true. They, you know, during an economic recession or something like that, they'll they should hopefully do better than uh, you know typical retailers.
1: Yeah, because the people that are buying have more excess cash. All right, uh, I'll hit mine. I got mine similar to Ian's classic, you know, two-sided marketplace dynamic here. They're not necessarily that large yet, uh, where someone couldn't come in and disrupt them theoretically, maybe. Uh, but the more customers and brands that join the site, the better the competitive advantage gets. So it's weird. It's like right now, and I guess you can kind of argue it's similar to the easiest example. Example something like this was like eBay or Etsy, where when they're smaller, there's a huge threat for someone to come in and just, all right, we're gonna throw some money at it, get some marketing going. But the larger and larger they get, the better theoretically. If they, you know, keep up the brand, like Brian is saying, they keep up the customer trust. Theoretically, that moat gets stronger and stronger.
0: Yeah, I'd say the only real competitive threat or the only thing preventing them from grabbing more market share is uh, the really, really prominent brands, the prominent luxury goods going DTC.
1: So Capri Holdings kind of?
0: Yeah, that's sort of, I would say, what probably gobbles up most of the market. I mean, a lot of this stuff is still done in store and I think they have room to grow from here. But uh, I mean, th- it there is trust compared to traditional marketplaces, but there's probably more trust
2: when you buy it directly from a brand's website.
1: Yeah, I agree. Ian, you have anything else on that? And if not kick off future growth opportunities.
2: Yeah, my future growth opportunity for them is just to continue to increase the volume from their top sellers. Um, And that's something they kind of highlighted in the most recent conference call is uh, the top 10 partners increased their listings by more than 70% in Q4. Uh, The top 100 brand partners have 100% retention over the past three years which is pretty incredible, like for a <laughs> hundred of anything to have a hundred percent retention, um, the platform seems to be working. And so um, I think if they continue to, just like we talk about with like uh, net revenue retention with software companies, I think if they can continue to kind of grow those relationships with many of these brand partners, uh, just driving more and more volume from those sellers can really have a big impact and, and um, is probably more effective than trying to attract lots of smaller sellers onto the platform.
1: Yeah, it gets into that global audience where typically, I mean, uh, well, I guess you could say like, all right, these companies, like Ryan was saying, can get their own D2C website. One, that costs a bit. It takes a while to make that really good. But two, Farfetch has the differentiator. I guess Ryan will talk about that entering China where that internet isn't really like the the open internet Um, and it really hits that Chinese luxury market where... I don't know, Farfetch can give you the distribution, I guess it's kind of just the whole thing there.
0: Yeah, it gives the sellers an advantage and it gives, I guess the consumers an advantage as well, especially if their logistics is uh, more efficient than yeah, it's kind of, uh, of taking is. it traditionally for a brand. Yeah. Uh, but I'll get into mine, the Alibaba partnership seems, I mean, that's the major growth opportunity they highlighted on their 20F. Uh, so in no- in November, they announced this partnership, November of 2020, uh, and they're calling it Farfetch China, so they're basically just putting Farfetch's marketplace or luxury channel on Alibaba's e-commerce site for reference. Alibaba's Alibaba's China retail marketplaces have 779 million active consumers across their platforms, um, and China is expected to become the largest luxury market in the world in the next five years, representing more than 100 billion dollars in luxury sales. So it's a huge market, um, and I actually you can argue that you know. They have their hands tied being under Alibaba. But I would say that's probably the right way to go about it. Um, it's the only way partnering with. You can't go without them. The biggest company in China. They don't let you go unless you're. Well, then, yeah. Then that's, have to. that's <laughs> the only way to go. Yeah.
1: It's like Starbucks. Even Starbucks can go go without them. But I'll hit uh, my future growth opportunity. It's Beauty, next logical step. Um, Management said, I think on the common skull, they say all over that. Something along those lines is coming in twenty twenty two, which it's nice to see the product roadmap laid out like that. But I don't know, got like don't <laughs> you don't just I don't know. You gotta hold your cards close to the chest sometimes, guys. I don't know, but in all re- like in all reality, it seems pretty like a pretty good thing to do. You'll put a lot of beauty stuff on there. Uh, the current customer base probably overlaps a ton for like people that like beauty products. Um, this category has better margins, especially through e-commerce. So I think that's a pretty easy growth opportunity for them.
0: Yeah. Anything else? Or No, I mean, no. those are, yeah, those are sort of the big ones. Everything there. It's also worth noting that all those future growth opportunities aren't just us guessing. Like yeah. they're on the ball with most of those. Um, I guess, yeah, I don't know how I feel about pre-announcing stuff two years early, but. <laughs> yeah. Oh, many SPACs. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> But yeah, uh, highlights and lowlights, Ian, you want to go first? Yeah,
2: I think the highlights for me start with the revenue growth and the market opportunity. They've had over 60% revenue growth for the last couple of years. And um, that's just, it's pretty impressive, particularly in a pandemic, I think that they were able to do that. We were just looking at Revolve a couple of weeks ago, who was um, much closer to flat revenue. And uh, I think, you know, Ryan, you mentioned it earlier about how those luxury goods are sometimes more resilient in these recessionary environments. And I think this was an example of that and the way that they grew revenue this year was really impressive. Um, I also like the e-concessions model, they call it where um, the stores are kind of, it's like the Amazon model, basically that you can set your own prices and, and, um, and that they're not, it's not the traditional uh, wholesaler to retailer relationship that They're actually letting them have more control over pricing. And I think that more things are going to go that direction in the future. And so I'm, I think that the vision's good there. I think some of my, the low lights for me are some of these, um, and I know Brett's going to get deeper into these, but some of the, some of these, uh, just the debt that they've issued does not make a whole lot of sense. Um, I think there's some, I, I don't love the uh, 70% ownership or voting rights from the founder. Um, the adjustments they make to adjusted EBITDA to get it from, you know, negative 40% to positive is a little bit concerning to me. But, um, anyways, I just, I, I'd say, yeah, that's, that's kind of my low lights. Right. And I'd say, uh, so you mentioned Revolve group, the thing that may have helped Farfetch, and
1: again, they, they were growing faster than Revolve has ever grown. So they got them on that front, but Uh, Revolve is mainly in the U.S. U.S. has been a lot worse with the coronavirus. Farfetch is a lot more in China. So that might have been kind of the market dynamics there. And And it's luxury
0: spend. I mean, yeah. And Revolve is less
1: luxury. So I don't think it's apples to apples, but that is a good comparison to maybe Farfetch is executing better.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's sort of my highlight is the business model seems fairly resilient. I, I think the TAM, I hate to be a TAM guy, but the TAM is very large. um, And it seems like they're doing a lot of things right. But there's just these little red flags scattered throughout the 20F that were hard to overlook. Um, I guess another one, there is two different uh, outstanding legal things going on. There was a page full of different internal controls and uh, or adjustments to internal controls, related party transactions, all that stuff. All the good even, stuff. Even a small, there's like that quote, a small leak can sink a large ship. You, you want sort of a bulletproof uh, financial statement. And it's hard, especially when you're not clear about why those derivatives are tanking your earnings. Um, it's hard to get around that.
1: Yeah. Don't
0: try to like baby your investors. You know what I mean? Explain what they
1: are. Yeah. If they're non-cash targets, just explain that. Like don't beat around the bush. And then- I'll probably talk about some of the other lowlights too with that. Uh, but on the the TAM argument, are we sure that this luxury stuff is going to go that much to e commerce? It feels like something that, especially like jewel
0: jewelry. I, think, I don't know. Whether I think it will. It, it's. I think it's getting over the yeah. hurdle of do I trust behind online, and I think Farfetch is sort of uh, shrinking that hurdle. Maybe maybe,
1: I don't know, maybe I don't know far fetched enough, but I, I am a little skeptical. Don't think I have a take either way, but I would just be worried that luxury isn't going online. And maybe that's their kind of hedging themselves with the store opportunity too.
2: Yeah. I think they talk about that a little bit, that they're really trying to have some physical locations as well. What, what that looks like exactly. I think they're still figuring out what, um, they want to look that, what that to look like going forward and what the mix they want it to be. But I, do I think, all you know, 100% or even 90% of luxury is going to start selling online? No, probably not even in our lifetimes. But, you know, is it going to improve from where it is today and get to maybe 50-50? I, I could see that happening.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I just, the only thing is I kind of thought about when we interviewed Dan Klein, uh, who is, he works at Seven Investing, one of the lead advisors, and he's probably one of the top retail experts out there. He was like, he kind of had this point that I've been thinking about for a long time where he said, if something didn't go e-commerce last year, there better be a good reason
0: for it to go e-commerce in the future. Yeah, that is Yeah, that is very true. I, it, I'm kind of stuck between like people want to vet these products in person and at the same time, like how many times have people underestimated yeah. how, what would go online? That's
1: true. That's very true. And maybe when things get, you know, you trust Barfetch, they may be adding some AR things. I don't know, something like that. But I'll, I'll hit my highlights and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. I like that platform tools thing. That feels pretty mody to me, that Shopify competitor type thing. Uh, it seemed like it was a decent amount of their revenue and maybe that's higher margin. Good gross margins overall. Uh, pretty confident top line growth can continue in that. Really impressive trailing top line growth. Lowlights though, Ryan mentioned some of these, Ian mentioned some of these. Um, headquartered in the Cayman Islands. That doesn't mean necessarily a bad thing, but it's a tiny little fly. It kind of throws up your, you know, I don't know, uh, yeah. antenna a little bit. It's not a giant one, but why not? Why? Why are you there?
2: But, but isn't Chit Chat Money like the most popular investing podcast in the country? <laughs> that's Island? right. We do
1: like the Caymans. We do yeah, like don't the Don't bash the Caymans. <laughs> Those, that's our audience. When it, well, the only reason that the Cayman Islands always, or Malta or whatever, I guess you're just doing it for tax reasons, but I always ask, why are you there and not in your own country? Why would you want to pay
0: more in taxes? It's a fiscal, responsible
1: decision. Farfetch has got quite the amount of deferred tax ex- assets. So they're not going to be true. paying
0: taxes for a long time. they got enough. plenty of losses to write off. That's, yes, yes.
1: But uh, I, I think the Alibaba partnership, while it can give them that secular growth um, in China, it gives them that advantage. I think the downside of that is you're at the mercy of Alibaba. And if you're at the mercy of Alibaba, you're at the mercy of what, the, you know, the powers that be in China want. And they can, you know, they can see Farfetch and they can close their fists and take it away that easily. That just seems risky to me. Um, related party transactions, the weird liabilities, huge share dilution, um, terrible debt management. I mean, if you were a shareholder a year ago, that's great. But we're trying to talk about being shareholders now. It's you also, know,
0: I don't know, is it a red flag to you that like the CFO priced these convertibles where they did, it almost makes me feel like the market bid this up more than the people that know the business best. Yes. Like I mean, they right. were, they, they missed by a long shot. So it was, and they know the business pretty damn well. So it,
1: yeah. If you were a shareholder, then that's great. But if you're trying to identify whether you should buy shares now, it's a huge negative
0: um, Either they have a terrible CFO or the shares are, are <laughs> fairly overpriced.
1: Yeah. And then the last one, um, and this just might be the structure for doing international stuff, but they got like 40 subsidiaries. Uh, that, it's just impossible to investigate the stuff like that. It just reminds me of, and now all these things don't mean necessarily that they're doing bad things and they probably aren't. But these are the bad things you these are the things you see in companies that do bad things. And it just, I don't know, it's, yeah. it, it's like you're turning over the rock and you
0: see, you see a lot of barns in here. You're not going
1: to, you're not going to investigate one farther.
0: Yeah. It's the small league can sink a large ship. Yeah. It, like enough red flags should, should give you maybe a reason out.
1: Yeah. All right. More or less interested. I think we might've, I think i have put my, uh, <laughs> or, uh, show my cards there, but Ian, we'll kick it off
0: first with you.
2: Yeah. This was a company I thought. I was really intrigued when we looked at Revolve, and I know it's a different business than Farfetch, and, and Farfetch is focused on these luxury goods. And, and um, But I, I was intrigued by Revolve. I thought Farfetch is kind of similar, growing even faster, um, and it just, it was like, it, it seemed unnecessarily complicated, which is kind of like the whole, um, maybe that's what this episode should be titled just unnecessarily complicated, but, um, and we've, we've struggled through that today, trying to figure out what is going on and with the subsidiaries and the debt and everything. It's just like, it seems like it should be a really simple business model and that it should be really easy to explain. And they have like five strategic steps that they did last year and five new strategic steps that they're going to do next year and all this type of stuff. And it's just like, I can't wrap my head around it really. And it doesn't seem like it should be the type of thing that I can't wrap my head around, but I can't. So So you're at less interest. So I'm less interested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I agree with all those
1: points. It's way too complicated. Ryan, what, what are your thoughts?
0: I would, I would also say like, if you're looking at China as the future growth opportunity, which I did put down there, like
1: China's, is, China, China
0: is. isn't new to them. They, yeah. they were partnered with JD.com since 2017. Um, so it's not like a brand new market. Uh, there are some, it's a business I wanted to like. Yeah. Um, and I guess the CFO yeah. thought maybe the price is too high, but I didn't think the price was irrationally high. If they could get, if they could expand those contribution margins um, and uh, keep the third-party take rate high and continue to bring stuff in-house, but there are just too many, too many red flags, and it's hard to just turn a blind eye to
1: them. Yeah, I agree with all those points. That's the main reason I'm less interested. And then on a more business level, I do worry about that TAM. And I know that that's not something you're typically supposed to wor- worry about, but let's say, okay, the markets, the, the they capture a third of the market, that's $100 billion based on the worldwide estimates. And I say they do that by 2030. You have $100 billion in GMB. Let's say you have like a 30% take rate because the take rate is going to come down over time. You would think, um, I think uh, 30% take rate Well, it well first party rate. depends on first party, but let's say conservatively, because we're trying to do some estimates out to 2030, 30% take rate, maybe that's too low. Uh, so you have a 30% take rate, that's $30 billion in revenue. Let's say you have a 20% free cash flow margin. That's six billion in free cash flow. The current market cap fully diluted on all these current convertible notes is like twenty-five billion. I mean. If they succeed, what are we looking at here over the next 10 years? A
0: four X return? I don't know. It doesn't really excite me. Yeah, maybe. You might have just done too much mental math, but yeah. <laughs> it might be too hard to track for listeners. But
1: Well, yeah. oh, I'm just saying that if you have six billion, yeah, sorry, that's too much numbers. But if you have six billion in free cash flow, I don't know, what's that valued at? A little over a hundred billion dollars. You
0: know. If this company had six billion in free cash flow in ten years, I wouldn't mind owning them, but
1: but that's the what I'm saying. That's the best case scenario. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I'm less interested. Um, maybe. feels a little
0: far-fetched.
1: Good <laughs> one. That's a, that's a great way to end it. Ian, do you have anything before we uh, kick things off? And Ryan, oh.
0: you are the new company of the week. I have something I can give to you. I have one in mind. Uh, I'm going to go with GoPro.
1: Nice. Turnaround it's, story. Uh,
0: it's a turnaround story. I know you might seem unexcited, but. It's a little bit of a pivot in the business model. There's a subscription element. We love to see that.
1: We are talking about software as a service transition. Everyone should love that. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. All right, uh, that's going to do it. Make sure to subscribe to 7investing. They got new picks and they got a fantastic new advisor joining the team. You get $10 off with our code CCM at checkout. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.